bring up your sons better. Bring up your sons to respect women. I think there needs to be a, a little bit more understanding and education around that. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper? This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Giovanna Forti, who, as her name suggests, is a force to be recognised. Almost 15 years ago, she co-founded Forte Medical. She's vice president of BAWE, British Association of Women Entrepreneurs, and inventor of a revolutionary medical device, PZ Midstream. And she joins me now. Giovanna, I have, of course, immediately got to start with your name, Forte. <laughs> Giovanna Forte. <laughs> are, you, are you a force to be reckoned with? A Forte, of course, means strength. It's part of a sword blade from the hilt to uh, yep. the middle. Well done. So many people know that. Thank you very much. I've done my homework. Also, it's music. When you play it loudly, do you live up to your name, which I suspect you do? Um, I, 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 I think I do. My mother was Swiss German, however. My father was Italian. And as was once said to me, the problem with you, Giovanna, is I don't know if you're going to be passionate or efficient. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I think I'm, a, I'm a, a kind of heady mix of both, I would like to think. But strong and loud, yep. Um, efficient, yes. Well, a, a very uh, strong combination, Teutonic and Italian. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get your strength from? Is it a generational thing? Did you learn it from other women in your family? My mother and my grandmother um, and, and indeed my father. Um, you know, my father's parent family came over, as is fairly well documented with the Forte family, came over as immigrants in the 1920s um, and they had to make their own way. Um, my mother came over as um, an au pair in the 50s, early 50s, and met my father. Um, and, you know, her family had lost everything in the war. So I come from two parents who built something from nothing and who built a family and who, who um, paid for that family. You know, they built a home. Uh, they did everything for us. And they were entrepreneurial. They were imaginative. They were strong. Um, and they brought us up to be the same way. How interesting. Interesting that both your mother and your grandmother. So what did you learn from both these women? Well, when my, my grandparents, my, my maternal side, they, they lost everything during the war. They, had, they were living in northern Italy and they had to flee back to Switzerland uh, with nothing. Um, and my grandmother had a little bit of money left and she started a pension um, where she fed workers and put them up. And they had been incredibly wealthy. Um, so she went from having a life of luxury to, to working. So my mother, at the age of 12 or 14, found that she no longer had a maid. She no longer had everything she wanted. She had to leave school at lunchtime and go back to serve the workers. And my mother always said to me, you will learn how to do all of this when you're young. So that when you're older, if you don't have to do it, that's great. But if you do have to do it, you know how to do it. And if you have to tell other people how to do it, 
you know how to show them how to do it. Well, I think what's very interesting about your uh, professional journey to date, it, it's not about where you start from. It's where you're going and where you end up. Because uh, I think when I first met you, you very wittily said you've gone from PA to PR and now P. <laughs> so you lost the, the you R replaced the A yeah. with an R. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so tell us, uh, where, where did you start off professionally in your career? Um, I wanted to go and do business studies and my father said no he wouldn't let me because my sister had done that and come home with a bearded socialist boyfriend and that wasn't going to happen to me so um she's done incredibly well from that um and, and I wanted to emulate her because she is also a role model for me um but anyway he, he said no so I was sent off to learn how to be a secretary and uh, I, I was quite angry about it and I uh, those are the days of the little rah-rah skirts and spiky hair and I went to quite a slowly pony place in Cambridge where all the girls wore barber jackets and puffer jackets. And I sat at the back with my arms folded. Um, and this woman came in to teach us secretarial duties. So we did shorthand typing, secretarial duties and bookkeeping. And she looked like Miss Moneypenny. She was amazing. And she stood there and she said, you are not here to learn how to be secretaries. You are here to learn how to be the sorts of women without whom businesses fold. Have I made myself clear? And at that point, I sat up and thought, now this is worth it. <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> and and that secretarial course that I did, it was the best thing I could have done. I was engaged with it. I loved it. I loved the teachers because they'd all worked. They'd all, you know, they, they'd all done stuff and, and they were able to pass all that information on to us. So they weren't just teachers. They were mentors as well. And they shaped us. And I left there and started temping back in Brighton, didn't much move back in with my parents. And then I got a job at Thames Television, where I worked initially for the director of programmes, very clever man called Mia Sutherland. Um, and then I moved on to TVI, which documentary magazine program, documentary program, it's kind of ITV's panorama, version of panorama. Um, and then I moved on to a, a regional magazine programme called uh, Reporting London. And Terry Kelleher, late Terry Kelleher, my boss, said to me, you know, you're, you're too clever to be a secretary. You, you've got to do something else. Um, why don't you try and be a researcher? So I applied for a job as a researcher in the children's department because uh, I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. I can do that. And I'm interested in, 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 in this kind of thing. And then um, I had a phone call from a woman called Sue. And um, she said, why are you applying for this job? You're a secretary. And I said, but I want to move on. I want to do stuff. And she said, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to process your application. And I put the phone down and burst into tears. And Terry came out and said, what's the matter? And I said, well, this woman, Sue, won't process my application because I'm just a secretary. And he looked horrified. He said, she was my secretary three years ago. And I thought, <gasps> oh, well, OK, I've, I've got to leave. And I went to work for this guy who had a, a reputation of being quite a monster. He had a furious temper. Uh, but I liked him. We got on. And if he shouted at me, I shouted back. Um, and actually, Richard Copley-Smith became a mentor to me until uh, he died last year. He was he was the most marvellous man. And I found that working for someone like him in a very small business, I absorbed everything that went on. So I was taught within a week, I was being taught about direct mail campaigns, about exhibition floor plans, about people flow around an exhibition. Um, all the different things that are involved, and I loved it. 
Why do you think it is that we as women put up with this, oh, she's just a secretary or and we and we've often I've heard women often say, oh, I'm just a housewife. Why are we just to anything, do you think? Well, because society historically has put us in that place. I never thought of myself as just a secretary. So when someone else said it, I thought, well, I'll go and do something else then. When you co-founded Forte Medical with your brother, what what gave you the idea and why did you team up? And tell us a little bit about your organisation, because it's been successful for 15 years. At least. Yes. Um, well, I was running my own PR business, um, which was great, sort of heady Soho abfab PR days. And um, Vincent rang me up one day and as he was a GP and he said, I see, keep seeing women in my surgery, who I think I've treated for urinary tract infection, UTI, uh, but I haven't. And they come back and, and there's a problem with this. And I've been to talk to the microbiologists in the lab and they have told me that what happens is that those urine specimens are contaminated and they can't give me a result. And anyway, I'm following guidelines to prescribe broad spectrum antibiotics for three days and those aren't working. So they come back and I'll send another sample off to the lab and in the meantime, I'll give them another antibiotic. And the chances are that won't work either. And so the problem is with the specimen collection, because flora and bacteria wash off the skin into the first flush of urine and they go into the tube. And then they will create a mixed growth that will mask the bacteria that either the dipstick or the microbiologist is looking for. So we need midstream urine. And midstream urine is cited in every single guideline as being the gold standard. But there is no protocol to collect it. There is no guaranteed way of collecting it until Vincent, where well, he said to me, I don't know what to do about this. And I said, oh, for heaven's sake, Vincent, make something. Because when we were little, he was he was a boffin. He's always been a boffin. Uh, and he used to make stuff and, you know, set my mother's kitchen on fire with his chemistry experiments and things. Um, and he went, oh, okay. And a few weeks later, he rang me. He said, I've made this thing. And and the idea is that you women pee into it and the first bit of urine comes out of the bottom. And somehow that gets blocked. And it pushes the midstream into the tube. And I think it'll work. And I went, oh, great. Right, what, what now? And he entered it for um, some awards called Medical Futures. Anyway, he won. And he said to me, I've won this, this, this award for innovation. And I'm going to go and talk to all the press about it at the launch. And I said, oh, no, you're not. You don't talk to anyone about it until you've made it. And you know it works because someone's just going to you know, take it from me. I mean, he had, he had applied for a patent at this stage. Um, and that was my PR background. So I met him there and he said, look, would you help me with this? We, we each paid for the patents. We paid for product designers to design it properly um, and work out exactly how to make his concept work, uh, which we did. And then in 2006, um, having wrong lots of urology manufacturers and product medical people and said, um, are you interested in this? This is this is the problem. This is the what, what the problem it solves. Bill went, no, we have our own ideas. Thank you, um, in true British fashion. And so I said to Vincent, why don't we raise some money and do it ourselves? So we did. We went out and we raised seventy five thousand of angel funding with matched funding from the London Development Agency. But it took three iterations of the device that each iteration we had to take it out, test, trial it, get those trial results, uh, get the feedback from patients, improve it, make another one and so on and so forth. And this takes a long time. 
Um, so 10 years of R&D, and then six years ago, we launched the, the current version, which is being used in the NHS, and it's also on sale in the United States. Now, the difference between selling something like this in, in the, to the NHS is that it's preventative and it's very disruptive, and there is an upfront cost, as you know, so it'll cost um, just under a pound to buy PZ and the tube, um, rather than 8p for the tube. So the procurement people in the NHS say, we're not paying that much up front for something like this. If it's urine, it could just be done again. Now, you can use eight PZs for the price of one retest. Um, and 30, up to 30% of urine samples have to be retested. So we can, in theory, save the NHS about £50 million. But there are so many vested interests in the NHS. Um, you know, some of the big lab suppliers pay microbiologists as, as, as advisors. So they're not going to disrupt the supply from the, the you know, source of, of income, additional source of income, I should say. Um, and, uh, and also there's the silo budgeting and also the big companies, the big corporates that maintain the status quo. They have the lobbyists that talk to the politicians, that talk to the heads of the NHS. They sponsor things. They pay for things. We can't afford to do that. So we're now... Um, for, for the UK market, we're um, we're going to take a different approach, which I can't talk about because we're not launching it yet. Um, but it is it is um, it's going to put Peasy into the hands of the, the patient. What's kept What's kept you going? What's kept you believing? Because this is really important. You know, millions of women suffer from urinary tract infection every year, and I don't know if you had it, but. In a nutshell, if men peed pins and needles on a regular basis, you can bet your bottom dollar something would have been done about it. Um, and the thing is that the pharma industry will provide the antibiotics to treat, and I put inverted commas around that urinary tract infection, but increasingly the bugs in, in urinary tract infection are becoming resistant to, to antibiotics, particularly the broad spectrum ones that are being prescribed. So in, in, in essence, women are being put on the front line of antimicrobial resistance, for which there is no vaccine, which is, you know, it's dire. It's going to be the, the worse than a pandemic because there's nothing you can do about it. What I'm getting from you is a great passion about health and particularly women's health. But you yourself have also had health challenges personally, haven't you? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, I was one of these women that went to their GP with um, bottom symptoms. And was told that it was a gynecological problem because I was too young for it to be anything sinister. And I said, no, no, it's not gynecological. I know the difference between my in and my out. Uh, but I was sent to the gynecologist nonetheless. And I said to him, uh, there's nothing wrong with me. I need to go and see the bowel people. And he said, well, let's just look at you. In the interim, I went back to the GP and said, this is now happening. And he said, oh, it's probably deep piles. Don't worry about it. So when the gynecologist eventually told me that I was absolutely fine, I said, will you please write to my GP and tell him to send me to the bowel guys, um, which he did. And I went and I met this registrar and I told him the story and he looked horrified. And I had a colonoscopy the following week where they told me that there was a big polyp. They could, well, eight polyps, I think there were, and the big one they couldn't get out. And the guy came and said to me afterwards, well, it might be something cancerous, so be prepared. And as it transpired, it was. But my GP didn't tell me when I went to see him. He said, oh, um, yeah, you're seeing your surgeon in a couple of days. He'll discuss the results with you. So I turned up to, to Bart's and met this very nice chap who sat there and said, you saw a GP a couple of days ago? Yes. Right. Well, do you want to kind of look at the screen and see where the cancer is? 
No. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Now, there were eight students in the room. And I'd said, of course, you must have students in the room. My brother is a medic. They have to learn. And I turned to these eight kids and said, you come and look at this first. I have grown this for you so that you can learn. And they all came and shuffled around. And anyway, so this, the, the guy said to me, right, well, we can either scrape it out or we can go in and chop it out. And I said, you're chopping it out. And he said, no, you have to go in and think about it. No, I don't. You're going to chop it out. He said, it's a big operation. And I said, who's going to do it? And he said, I am. I said, well, who are you? At which point there was this collective gasp from the students. <laughs> and he wrote his name down and I went home and looked him up and he was colorectal god. I was really lucky. Colorectal god, I've not heard yeah. that one before. <laughs> so uh, Professor Shafi Ahmed, um, he, he removed my cancer and he's charming and lovely and he's the best in the business and I couldn't be luckier. And it's gone. My cancer's gone. Do you think, Giovanna, that having had cancer and set up 40 Medical, at what, what stage did you have the cancer? Was it when you'd already set up 40 Medical? Or was oh, it yes. Yeah, it was um, six or seven years ago. And we were in the middle of a funding round and the company was running out of money. And I remember the day I came out of intensive care asking my other half to bring in my iPad. And he said, what for? And I said, oh, so I can play patience. And it wasn't. It was so I could start emailing investors to say, we need, we need money into the business. Um, and every time someone came in, I had to hide the iPad. <laughs> Do you think women are listened to by doctors? And what do you think is the most important aspect of women's health that perhaps we're not looking at? Well, first of all, no, women are very rarely listened to. And I think quite often trials and things focus on men. I mean, you really got to look at those little dummies that they use, the crash test dummies. They're, they're male-sized, um, which is why women come off worse in accidents. Um, you know, think, all those sorts of trials and, and what have you are geared towards men. Um, there is still um, an underlying belief in, particularly with male doctors, that women are somehow hysterical and we don't know what we're doing, which, which is why when I went to my GP with, you know, bowel cancer symptoms, I was told it was gynecological. How dare they? How dare they treat us like idiots who don't know our own bodies? We know our bodies infinitely better than men do because we care about our bodies and we look after our bodies. And, you know, we, we, we take, take our vitamins, we do this, we do that. We, you know, we bother. And I think women, um, we look after our bodies because we have great responsibilities. We're the people that make other people. We have the children. You have to be healthy to do that. We're largely the people that look after the families, that look after the older people, the, the older generation. We bring up the children. Now, whether or not you think that's right or wrong, I think that's a great privilege that we've been given. Um, and you have to be healthy and well to be able to do that. There is the cliche that it's a man's world and that, you know, that we're all made to look at the world through a male lens. Do you think Yeah, despite over, over 50% of us being women, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Do you, do you th <laughs> exactly, just a little statistical a bit of importance there. Anomaly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do, you, do you think it is a man's world? And do you think if it is a man's world that, it, that we can shift it in some way? Uh, I mean, where do you think women are now? I think women have more power than they believe. 
I think the world has gone slightly backwards in terms of equality. Why women are referred to as a diversity issue, I have no idea. I mean, again, that's another how dare they situation. You know, there are more of us than them, and yet we have to be included. You know, my attitude is don't include me. I'll include myself, thank you very much. And I think we need, we need, we need to bring our girls up, you know, to have that belief. I've brought both my daughters up to believe they can do anything. You know, I've always said to them, if you want to do it, you do it. You can do anything. And if someone tells you you can't, just ignore them. If you believe you can do something, of course you can. Um, and I think boy, boys are taught this routinely. Um, and and we, need to ke- we need to bring up the next generation in a, in a much more feisty, powerful fashion. So what's your view of hashtag, the hashtag Me Too movement? Um, it resonates. Um, I have a bit of an issue with going back decades and, and, you know, pointing at somebody. I mean, you know, I remember being in the lift at tennis television with a very then famous newsreader who would look at whoever, all the women in, in the lift and just declare nice tits at one of them, you know, and, and we kind of put up with it. <laughs> But you know, and you, but there's a bit of me that thinks you poor, you poor sod. Imagine being so pitiful that you have to comment on women's body parts, you know. And I think we need to, we need to feel a bit sorry for those men that behave like that. I, I think we need to me too now, you know, as things happen. Um, I think we need to be strong, but we also need to be strong enough to tell these men to get lost, you know, when they hit us because we're too polite to them. Did you have many incidences? I'm, not, I'm, I'm, you know, to f- fall into the stereotype when you were a secretary. Oh yeah, loads. When that, loads. How, how were you treated by the men then, and the women actually? Well, normally like a bit of a dolly bird, you know. But I have to say, I mean, this this is, uh, you know, a testament to the era at Secretarial College. We did have a lesson on sitting on a desk and taking shorthand without showing too much leg, so as not to encourage the boss. <laughs> now, you know. Is that okay? Is it not? Well, so if you don't encourage the boss. So we're taught, we were taught at that early age how not to, you know, tempt those stupid men who can only think about what's hanging between their legs <laughs> and not what's going on in their heads. We look at men as physical objects too. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to take a double take at some gorgeous creature walking down the road. Yeah, we all do it. It's how overt you make it and whether or not you make the object of your admiration feel uncomfortable. And men are quite happy to make women feel uncomfortable or they don't seem to notice they're making women feel uncomfortable. Whereas I think we're a bit more discreet about it. And how, how do you think we can stop it? How do, I mean, because the, the other thing not, is... Not putting up with it and being, a, you know, we are being a lot more vocal about stuff like that. And also, you know, bring up your sons better. Bring up your sons to respect women. You know, why, why is, is misogyny getting worse? I don't understand. Fathers and mothers, and particularly fathers, need to bring up their, their sons to understand that women deserve respect. You know, these, these guys that do this, they wouldn't want their sisters or mothers to be treated like this. So why are they doing it to other women? I think there needs to be a, a, a little bit more understanding and education around that. Uh, what about what about women in the workplace? How did they treat you? 
largely pretty okay. You get the occasional woman who, um, you know, who, who has her own issues and, you know, but I don't really take any notice of that. Women are largely very supportive of each other, particularly now. I think it's getting much, much better. Uh, back in the day when there were fewer women in the workplace, and Joan Bakewell um, points this out in, in her biographies, you know, there was a certain amount of competition because women weren't as common in the workplace as they are now. Um, whereas now we're all in it together kind of thing. And so we support each other and help each other, which is, you know, where the British Association of Women Entrepreneurs comes in. We're a very varied group of women and we all help each other. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, our, our bounce back picnic yesterday, at least three women came up to me and said, oh, I've got a contact for you. I've got someone I want you to meet. Um, you know, and that that's fantastic. That's Women are just great. I love them. I, I do have a sense that women are becoming more supportive of one another, probably because we we don't have to be quite so sharp elbowed towards one yeah. another. Yeah. And the days of climbing up the ladder and pulling it up after you are pretty much over, I would like to think. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to think that as well. So what would you say to women in particular who might be starting out on their career now? What 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 would your wiser woman say to the younger Giovanna that you'd like to pass on? I would say work out what it is you want to do that makes you happy and do it. Don't let somebody railroad you into doing something you don't believe in. Don't do something for the sake of it. Don't do something just for the money. If you do something that makes you happy, then everything is more likely to fall into place. And what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. Not trying to please other people. Please yourself first. Impress yourself first. Because if you're not pleased with yourself and you're not impressed with yourself, why the hell should anyone else be? So what do, where, where do you see yourself in, say, 10 years' time professionally? I would like to move on from Forte Medical. Um, in fact, when we've finished our current fundraising round, I would like to install uh, a CEO who has experience of scaling up because I don't have that experience. I'm a getting things going person. And then I would like to reduce my hours in Forte Medical and start some other things. I've got ideas for um, uh, role, to set up a, a database of role models for kids at school who might want to do something uh, and they want to meet somebody who does that thing. Um, oh, gosh, there are lots of things I want to do. And I just want to be able to have the time and the money to do that. So hopefully I will make some money from Forte Medical. Women will be better as a result of that. And I'll be able to pay forward my good luck at having built a successful business. Giovanna Forte, I can definitely say that you've lived up to your name and you have certainly been there and done that. Thank you so much for talking to me. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for talking to me. Thank you for listening to Being There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well. So please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really young? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. 
Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?